Hello, welcome to episode 12 of That Human Bio Thing. And in this episode, we'll be looking at biotechnology. Now, in biotechnology, what we are basically doing is manipulating living things to produce useful products. In terms of the specification, the focus for this is on recombinant DNA technology. Recombinant, because you are combining two different sections of DNA that belong to diff different organisms. Gene, as in a section of DNA that codes for a particular polypeptide. And technology, using advances to try and produce the product that you want, or using techniques to, improve, uh, to produce the product that you want. The alteration of genetic material in a way that does not occur naturally by mating is done using genetically modified organisms. Now, the application of these techniques, or what we'll be looking at is, in terms of the recombinant technology techniques, we'll look at DNA sequencing, DNA profiling, polymerase chain reaction, and gel electrophoresis. Now, we may look at a couple of other things as well in the process. Before we go any further, we need to understand what a genome is. The genome is the complete set of genetic information of a person. And in 1990, a consortium of about 20 international research centres worked together to come up with the, or to sequence the entire human genome. And when we say sequence, that means determining the order in which the nucleotides within the DNA are found. The project, known as the Human Genome Project, was completed in 2003. And whilst the HGP simply states that the order of nucleotide bases in humans, research is focused uh, on identifying genes in the genome with the hope of, that genetic diseases can be identified, treated and prevented in the future. Many genes have already been identified and over 4,000 genetic disorders are known. The hope is that knowing the location of these faulty genes will enable scientists to carry out gene therapy. Gene therapy being where a gene, uh, a faulty gene is replaced by uh, a gene that is functional, or genes. DNA sequencing is probably the one that I find the hardest to describe. I guess the most important thing to recognise is that DNA sequencing is the order in which the bases appear. And it was discovered, well there were a couple of methods, but the method that I'll mention is the Sanger method, discovered or developed by Frederick Sanger and built upon by others, uh, which is the dideoxy sequencing uh, method. And in this, the DNA is denatured. Now, what does it mean to be denatured? It means it's heated to a high temperature, and that temperature is 96 degrees C. What this causes is the hydrogen bonds between the two strands of DNA to break, and therefore you end up with single-stranded DNA. A primer is then attached to the DNA template, which is the non-coding strand, and the strand is equally distributed into four different test tubes. Also, DNA polymerase is added, DNA polymerase. DNA polymerase will add complementary base pairs to the DNA. So A will always pair with T and G will always pair with C. And I'm sure you know what they are. But into each tube, a different DNA nucleotide is placed, but with hydrogen synthetically replaced, replacing the hydroxyl group on the deoxyribosugar. So what this means is that the strand can't continue to add or develop a phosphodiester bond between the phosphate group and the ribosugar. And as a result of that, the strand will stop forming at that point. Those are called the dideoxy groups. And you'd have dideoxy A, dideoxy C, dideoxy G, and dideoxy T. 
and when one of these dideoxynucleotides is inserted into the replicating chain, DNA sequencing stops at this point. As the process is repeated several times, it means that the dideoxynucleotides are inserted at different points in the DNA chain, forming different lengths of DNA strand within each of those four tubes. And then what we do is we carry out a gel electrophoresis. Now, gel electrophoresis is basically you have a gel, and into that you run electricity. So in other words, you run an electric current. You place the DNA at one end, DNA is negatively charged, so it will run from the anodes towards the, sorry, it will run from the cathodes, I apologise for that, cathodes being negatively charged towards the anodes, which are positively charged, and because the fragments are different length, the smaller fragments will travel further than the larger fragments. So if you try and think of it as um, two animals trying to run through a very dense forest, the smaller animal can get further than the larger animal because the trees get in the way. In the same way, the DNA is working at the fragments of DNA, which are different lengths, are trying to work their way through the molecules of the gel, and the smaller pieces can travel further than the larger pieces. So what this does is it forms a band, and because we're looking at the four um, different bases within DNA, A, T, C, and G, it means that the fragments spread out in accordance to the length of the strands and because we put dideoxy A in one, dideoxy C in the next, dideoxy G in the next and DDT uh, in the final one, it means that they will spread out accordingly. Now the sequence of the bases can be determined by going from the longest strand, the three primer end, to the shortest strand, the five primer end, then the complementary, complementary template strand, if I can say it, can be determined. So as a result of that, we can actually work out the sequence of the DNA. Now, in my textbook, I've put an example. If the free, the coding strand was ACA, GCT, TGA, CTG, GAC, AGAT, then the template strand would be TGT, CGA, ACT, GAC, CTG, TCTA. Now, I'm sure that's not that helpful, um, and probably I, there's a possibility I might miss one out. Now, DNA sequencing, why is it important? Well, it's important because it can show you where a person has a faulty gene and whether they may be predisposed to genetic diseases. And in the future, it's hoped that this will lead to personalised treatment for specific gene diseases identified. The problem would be if insurance companies got hold of that information. DNA sequencing can be used in maternity and paternity tests to help identify the mother or father of a child in cases of dispute. However, it is more common to use DNA profiling for these processes. So a common exam question would be, how is DNA sequencing used? Well, first of all, it would probably say, uh, describe what DNA sequencing is and give an example of how it is used. And that would be an example of that process. So what is DNA profiling? Well, DNA profiling is not the same as DNA sequencing, and they can often get muddled up. DNA profiling, profiling is used to identify individuals based on the banding pa patterns of fragments of DNA, and we use the short tandem repeats. In other words, we use sections of DNA with what is sometimes known as junk DNA or nonsense DNA, not the genes themselves. There is a lot of differences within these short tandem repeats, and it's these short tandem repeats which provide us with differences between different individuals and this is what forms the DNA fingerprint as we sometimes call it. So how does this work? Well 
if you were at a crime scene, for example, you may find a sample of blood, you may find a sample of a uh, hair sample, uh, you may find some uh, semen, and in that you've got DNA. Now the first thing you're going to need to do is uh, magnify or amplify the amount of DNA. So that process would be known as polymerase chain reaction, and we'll come back to that. There are three parts to the polymerase chain reaction. In DNA profiling, what you do is, again, you find a specific restriction enzyme to cut the DNA at particular points in, uh, in the sequence. So different restriction enzymes will cut based on the entire se uh, particular sequence, and it always runs the same way. So the sequence will always run from three to five in the primer. Now, DNA is exactly the same in both directions. So one strand will go from three to five, the other strand will go from five to three, but the order of the bases will be the same on both strands. And therefore, if you get a question that asks you to identify the rest of the strand of DNA, you should be able to work it out based on the fact that the sequence will be the same going in the opposite direction. Uh, usually you'll be presented with the three to five prime uh, sequence of bases, and then you can work out what the five to three prime will be because they will be complementary. So how does this process work? Well, you use the restriction enzyme. Now, what is a restriction enzyme? Well, bacteria need to defend themselves against viruses. Viruses will attack bacteria as well. And so these viruses that attack bacteria are known as bacteriophages. Bacteria have developed a defense mechanism against these, these viruses. And what they do is they will cut at specific sequence of bases. And we call that restriction enzymes or Sometimes they're known as restriction endonucleases. Examples of these include BAMH1, which will cut between G and G in a sequence of G, G, A, T, C, C, going from the five to the three prime, or G, uh, G, yeah, so you've got that one. Another one would be ECOR1, which would go cut between the G and the A in the sequence that goes from G, A, A, T, T, C. Now, I'm mentioning these, but to be honest, that I would actually say that in most exam questions I've seen they'd actually be included in the text. They wouldn't expect you to memorize all the sequences of the particular restriction enzymes. Suffice to know that they will always cut in the same point and always follow the same sequence in both strands. We'll come back to that and how that works in later but if you're using it in DNA profiling what will happen is that the fragments of DNA, let's say we used ECOR1, they will always cut at the same point. So what we do is we magnify or amplify, better word, the DNA quickly using PCR, and then we use the same, and there's the keyword, the same restriction enzyme to cut the DNA of the sample and of the um, other profiles that we want to look at. So then we run the gel, so gel electrophoresis, same process. We place the each sample in the wells at one end near the um, cathode, and the DNA will run towards the positive anode. I feel like I'm saying that the wrong way around, I'm gonna check, but anyway. Uh, the point is, what will happen is, DNA will run towards the positive anode, and as a result of that, you will actually find that the fragments, the smaller fragments will travel further. Then we can compare the bands, and the bands that are formed form a genetic uh, fingerprint, as it were. And when we compare them, we can actually identify similarities and differences. How is DNA profiling used? This is a good exam question. Well, it's used in maternal, maternal and paternal identification to find out if the alleged mother or father is actually the biological mother or father of the child. 
Twins, it isn't always clear at birth whether the twins are identical or fraternal. Identical twins will share the same DNA profile. Cells are taken from the umbilical cords of the two children and then um, DNA is extracted from those cells. Siblings, an example would be an adopted child may want to have DNA tests to make sure that the alleged biological siblings are actually their blood brothers or sisters. Immigration, some visa applications may depend on proof of relatedness. And finally, forensic use. Again, be specific with your language. Forensic use, don't just say um, at crime scenes. DNA testing can be used to compare the DNA profile of suspects to offender some samples. Some states, such as Victoria, allow the collection of blood and saliva samples from convicted criminals and suspects. DNA profiles are then kept on a database. The sample collected from the scene of a crime needs to contain something from which DNA can be collected, e.g. semen, hair or... Now ensure you know the difference between DNA profiling and DNA sequencing because they aren't the same. DNA profiling is comparing individuals and fragments of their DNA. DNA sequencing is determining the order of the bases within a sequence and that can be done. Both processes can be done using gel electrophoresis. So again, compare and contrast the differences and similarities between those two processes. And in doing so, you'll have a better understanding of those concepts. So we've mentioned restriction enzymes, and I've said to you that DNA cuts at specific sequences in, uh, dependent on what the particular restriction enzyme is. A key point to recognize is that DNA is universal. What does that mean? Well, it means it's the same in all organisms. And the beauty of that is that we can cut out particular points using particular restriction enzymes. We can cut either side of a gene, for example, or we can cut uh, at different fragments. Now the key point I forgot to mention with DNA profiling, I mentioned using the same restriction enzyme. If you really were using it in terms of a, a crime scene or using it within forensic science to be more specific and precise in my language, then to really find out whether this person is the, the suspect is the person we think has caused the crime, we would probably use a different restriction enzyme and run the test again to see whether we end up with the same result from the sample from the crime scene and also uh, with the sample with the suspect where we're thinking it could be. DNA uh, being cut with restriction enzymes usually results in what we call sticky ends. The advantage of that is that if we want to stick our um, section of DNA into another organism, a genetically modified organism, organism via what we call a transgenic process trans across genic gene insert in the gene into a different organism then uh, it's helpful to have sticky ends because the same restriction enzyme will cut at the same point which means we can insert the gene now we'll come back to how that can be used in terms of multiplication of a particular uh, product such as insulin later but the other thing that can be formed is when it cuts in a straight line, the, endo, the, sorry, the restriction enzyme cuts in a straight line and it forms blunt ends. This isn't a problem because we can artificially add uh, G and C bases and then to both the uh, section of DNA, the plasmid usually, that we want to insert the uh, section into and also to the DNA we have. When joining portions of DNA, we use another enzyme. So we've mentioned DNA polymerase. We've mentioned now, we're mentioning DNA ligase. And DNA ligase is used to stick different DNA sections of DNA together. And that's how that works. Uh, in DNA profile, so anyway, moving on. Polymerase chain reaction. 
So what is polymerase chain reaction? What's its purpose? Well, its purpose is to amplify the amount of a sample of DNA and producing thousands of identical copies and to do so quickly. Sometimes this PCR is used in conjunction with talking about evolution because when we find fossils, very often the amount of DNA that's found is very, very small. And so we amplify it quickly using this process. PCR, polymerase chain reaction, has three main stages. Denaturation, we've already talked about it, or denaturing. What does that mean? It means to separate the strands into two of the DNA, DNA being a double helix. So we heat it up to 96 degrees C, and in doing so, it actually separates the strands. Now remember, when you say degrees, it could be Fahrenheit or Celsius. So it's important to say 96 degrees C, or to heat to a high temperature. At this temperature, as I said, human DNA polymerase is destroyed. So a more heat-stable DNA is required, namely TAC polymerase, but it's not usually added at this point. Next, we cool the DNA down to around about 55 to 65 degrees C, and we attach a primer. Now, the term annealing is, really refers to annealing two different types of metal together. In this situation, we add a section of DNA, which acts as a marker for the DNA to start adding complementary bases to the single strand at this point. And so that's what that process is, annealing. And then we add in our TAC polymerase. Now, TAC polymerase, like DNA polymerase, or sorry, it is a form of DNA polymerase, will add complementary DNA bases to that, at that specific point where the primer is attached. We can heat the DNA up to 73 degrees C. So not quite as high as the denaturation process because we don't want the DNA to denature. But what it does is it means it's at a higher temperature and the complementary DNA nucleotides are added one at a time in a single direction to the single strand of DNA. And this is done in a thermocycler and doubles the number of DNA. So we sometimes call this process elongation or extension. Then this process is repeated and repeated and repeated over uh, using the thermocycler and we call that process a chain reaction because you go from 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 to 32 and so on. In recombinant DNA technology, an organism is described as transgenic when a gene is removed from one organism and transferred into another in such a way that the gene is expressed in the new host. In humans, the required gene is identified and the restriction enzymes are used to cut either side of the gene. This, then this gene is inserted into yeast or more commonly using a bacterium. Bacteria have small circular pieces of DNA called plasmids. The plasmids are distinct from the main bacterial genome and can be exchanged between bacterial cells. In fact, that's how they communicate. And so by inserting a, this required gene, if we know the amino acid sequence, the DNA for the gene can be worked out and the DNA synthesized in a, lab, a laboratory. In some situations, it's possible to isolate the messenger RNA that has been transcribed and make a copy of the DNA, which we call cDNA, from the mRNA. And this is done, as we will see, in insulin. So how do we produce insulin? Well, what we do, messenger RNA is extracted from the human pancreatic tissue. Complementary strands of DNA, or copy DNA, are 
produced using the viral enzyme reverse transcriptase. So again, think about the name. The enzyme describes what it does. So it does the reverse of what transcription usually does. Transcription reads the DNA to form, and then it's translated. In this situation, we're doing the reverse. We're going the opposite way around. So the enzyme is known as reverse transcriptase. The single-stranded cDNA is made into double-stranded DNA, allowing the enzyme DNA polymerase to make a second strand of complementary nucleotides to those of the copy DNA. The human insulin gene is then identified and has a bacterial regulator added and then using the same restriction enzyme as were used to isolate the gene in the cDNA, the gene is inserted into the plasmid using DNA ligase. Don't forget DNA ligase joins different or small sections of DNA together. The plasmid with the human gene is called a vector. Why? Because a vector is a carrier DNA molecule in which the DNA's fragment containing the wanted gene can be inserted. It is cloned and inserted into a culture of plasmid-free bacteria. These bacteria take up the vectors and the bacteria are then cultured and, and grown and they multiply, uh, therefore so do the vectors. Transcription and translation of the genes in the plasmid occurs, resulting in the production of human insulin. Now you don't want the bacteria, so at this point we purify the human insulin and it's, it's then separated. Now in the old days, in the 19th, in the old days when I was very young, in the 1970s we used to use pig insulin and the problem with that is whilst it's close to human insulin it used to give side effects. With recombinant DNA technology we can see that there are no side effects from using pure human insulin. Uh, another process is human growth hormone. It follows a similar process as already mentioned. Uh, producing factor VIII, uh, for those people who can't produce their own factor VIII, uh, this is a very important process as well. And then they, maybe the idea of produce, production of vaccines. So this fits in with the specific resistance to infection. Um, examples of this would be hepatitis B, uh, or vaccines for hepatitis B, I should say. Uh, hepatitis B is a viral disease that predominantly affects the liver. Uh, in 1986, the vaccine was introduced as a subunit vaccine uh, containing the sections of hepatitis B and this was using recombinant DNA technology. It's safe and highly effective. It's cultured, this is the difference, it's cultured in yeast cells, not bacterial cells. And it was first developed by inserting the gene from he the hepatitis B virus into the cowpox virus. Okay, gene therapy, what is it? Now there is a lot of controversy with gene therapy, as you would expect. And early trials were not very positive because insurance companies, sorry, it's not, or sorry, companies would sponsor people to carry out gene therapy who they targeted, and it did lead to some people being disbarred from their profession. The purpose of this technique, notice this, is to remove or replace faulty genes. So sometimes they're removed, sometimes they're replaced by inserting functional, healthy genes. That's a definition and as I've said to you before you do want to try and learn your definitions where you can. So what is the purpose of gene therapy? Well the purpose of gene therapy is to remove or replace faulty genes by inserting functional healthy genes. In most examples that you'll see this it's the insertion of the functional healthy genes and not, not removing the faulty genes per se and the idea is that the position of the genes has been identified it may become possible to correct errors in the genes and the human genome project the purpose of that is it helps us to identify around about 4,000 potentially faulty genes and if we can repair 
or replace these genes, then we can help people who are unable to produce particular proteins or things like that. So cystic fibrosis and Huntington's disease are two examples of diseases where gene therapy has the potential to correct the underlying cause of the disease by replacing the faulty gene with a healthy one. And so you might want to have a look at those examples and that's worth doing. Now, what is germline therapy or somatic cell gene therapy? Uh, these are possible approaches to repairing um, the gene in the fertilized egg so that the replay, repair gene would be copied into daughter cells at mitosis. This would result in the elimination of the mutant gene, not only from the person receiving treatment, but also from their offspring. Now, there are some ethical issues about this, and they've been raised about the right to alter the genes of future generations. And consequently, treatment has focused on somatic gene therapy, whereby only the affected tissues are targeted. In other words, anyway, even though the gene occurs in every cell of the patient's body. So that's how gene line therapy or somatic gene cell or cell gene therapy works. And again, I would look at cystic fibrosis, Huntington's disease, maybe type 1 diabetes, because these are all examples of where uh, we're trying to look at gene therapy to solve those problems. Just now going to mention two processes to finish this section off, cell replacement therapy and tissue engineering, which uh, often can get muddled up and are quite similar. Cell replacement therapy, sometimes called cellular therapy or cytotherapy, is therapy in which cellular material is injected into a patient. This generally means intact living cells of the patient. There are two degenerative nervous system diseases, neurodegenerative conditions. One is known as Parkinson's disease and the other is Alzheimer's disease and they have no known cure. It is worth looking up the differences between them. Um, you will find Alzheimer's disease usually affects people over 65 years of age. So sometimes because we've got an aging population, the more and more people are inclined towards this form of dementia. Symptoms include loss of memory, followed by confusion, mood swings, aggression, and general withdrawal. Use of drugs can slow down degeneration by increasing the levels of neurotransmitter um, in the brain, and that neurotransmitter is acetylcholine. Whereas Parkinson's disease affects older people and symptoms do vary. The main ones include shaking, slow movement, muscle stiffness, stoop posture, and impaired speech. Medications, drugs such as dopamine, are used to relieve symptoms and manage the condition. And so they are two conditions which you can possibly, we'll be able to use, um, and there's a lot of research going on into this area, particularly at ECU, where research has been going on into Alzheimer's disease, particularly because it's an aging disease. Not so much into Parkinson, although there are new practices going into Parkinson's all the time, but not around really the injection of new cells into the stem uh, new stem cells into those tissues there is some research and there's a lot of research around the CRISPR gene so what is tissue engineering it's the use of combination of cells engineering materials and suitable biochemical factors to improve or replace biological functions in an effort to improve clinical procedures for the repair of damaged tissues and organs that's a bit of a mouthful isn't it now, there are an abundant supply of disease-free cells of specific types which are required, and cells are induced to grow on a scaffold, as we call it, which supports the cells until they can manufacture their own matrix structure. These scaffolds provide nutrients for the cells and are highly porous to give room for cell growth. 
Once established, the scaffold, together with its tissue, is implanted into the patient at the, si at the site where the new tissue is required. Eventually, the scaffold degenerates, leaving the new tissue to carry on. Currently, tissue engineering is being used with a range of tissues, including bone, cartilage, skin, and adipose tissues. Eventually, the desire is to make organs, such as kidneys, from the person's own tissue, which would not be rejected by the body's own immune system. And so that is the end of this podcast. I hope you found it useful.